Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. My name is Liz Crow, And I'm Jessie Spur. And today we're joined by Bryn Waddington, who is the clinical nurse in the neurosurgical ward here at the RBWH, and he's going to talk to us about neurological assessment. Welcome, Bryn. Thank you very much for having me. Pretty keen to get into this. I would love to hear your backstory though, Bryn, your nursing origin. Um, yeah, I can tell you that there's not a lot to tell. Um, I suppose I've been working on the, the same ward for 15 years, um, was a student um, through QUT and I went onto the neurosurgical ward just before I finished up and just fell in love. I've been there ever since, studied my master's, um, uh, have, am now a CN there, um, acting in the numb role at the moment um, just while she's on some leave, but um, she'll be back soon. I'm very thankful for that, very, very <laughs> thankful for that. Um, so that's my that's really my journey there. Um, I got into nursing because i got a family of nurses. So my parents are nurses. They met nursing on a psych ward, which is a lovely thing to tell people. Um, uh, my grandparents were nurses. My great-great-grandfather was one of the first, like, male nurses in Australia, apparently. Oh, wow. Went to... I think he went to World War One or something oh. yeah, directly after, and I unfortunately didn't survive. But yeah, so it's a it's a it's family. It's literally in your blood. It is in my blood. Yes. Yeah. So I um, I had no plans to do nursing. I, I literally um, was hanging out one day and trying to work out something to do and with my life when I was about nineteen. Instead of working at the juice shop, and turned and looked at my mum and said, "You seem to have it pretty good. Like you you like your job, don't you?" Yeah, you, you seem to be at home all the time, 12-hour shifts. <laughs> um, and she said, yeah, it's fantastic. I absolutely love it. And, yeah, I um, applied pretty soon after and, yeah, haven't turned back. Absolutely love it. Yeah, what a great story. Yeah. Awesome. All right, so you're going to talk to us about neurological assessment. So your number one point is, why does my patient have an altered level of consciousness? I suppose for me, when I'm educating people on how to do a neurological assessment, I really like to have them having it in the back of their mind, why am I doing this assessment? What could be going wrong? Um, just so they can put it into context and have a bit of an idea, this person's drowsy, this person's not responding to me, this could be what's wrong and that's enough for me to, to, to think I need to act on this. That's really where I like to begin. So... There is a, a large array of reasons why someone could be unconscious. Generally, I like to start with the you know, being a neurosurgical nurse. I like to start with the, the reasons why um, from areas of the brain. So I would say, you know, it's um, it, there could be blood there. There could be a tumour there. Um, they could have a condition called hydrocephalus. Um, so extra CSF in the brain. It could just be a trauma, um, some sort of infection. Um or they could have had a stroke. 
Um, and then I like to think about the the other causes, you know, the other reasons why someone might be unconscious. You know, have they been taking any drugs or alcohol themselves? Have they brought them in themselves? Have we been giving them medications that are going to be sedating them? Are they withdrawing from any of these medications? Is is there a metabolic reason? You know, is this person alcoholic? Have they got some issues with their liver that's causing them to have an encephalopathy? Um, have they had a seizure or are they, are, are they post having a seizure? Um, infection as well, uh, you know, a lack of oxygen or, or even just insulin. Um, I, I just like people to have those thoughts in the back of their head so they can go, okay, these are the things that could be going wrong with my patient. I know my patient. Is it this? Is it that? Time to act. And is it a way of kind of having a framework of working through those things as a kind of signpost of what to do next? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. If you go in and you can sort of think to yourself, well, I see that this person is unconscious. I gave them a really large dose of insulin just before. I'm just going to check their sugar right now. And so it just, it lets them maybe act on something in more of a pointed way if they can know, oh, this could be affecting their level of consciousness. Right. So number two, what is a GCS score? Um, so, yeah, this is a, a very good question. Um, GCS, um, Glasgow Coma Scale, this is the bread and butter, really, of, of what it is that we do for a neurological assessment. It's um, maybe not the first thing you would do. I suppose um, with um, with most patients in, in certain wards, it would be the AVPU score. So you're checking to see if someone's alert, responding to the voice or pain or unresponsive, um, and then moving on to a, um, the Glasgow Coma Scale. So what are we assessing with the GCS? I, I like to think that um, it, it sort of splits into two things that we're looking at. We're looking at whether or not they're awake, if they're wakefulness, so are they are they literally not asleep? Um, and then <laughs> and then we're looking at their awareness. It's the ability to have an experience. You know, can they perceive them themselves and their surroundings, um, and can they act on the world with intent? If you're telling them to do something, are they aware enough that they can jump in? And do the things that you're asking. So I think the first thing that I will do um, when I'm assessing someone for their Glasgow Coma Scale, um, and it's a little bit of a no-brainer, I'll wake them up. So you, you go in and you actually make sure before you do anything else, like, hey mate, how's it going? I'm in, I'm going to do your blood pressure. If they wake up and you know, give out their arm to you so you can put the blood pressure cuff on, you already know you're, you're winning anyway. Um, but so generally, that's the first thing I'll do. I'll, I'll go in, I'll wake them up and, and, and make my assessment from there. Um, what we're looking at next is the, um, oh, we'll, what we're looking at then first is um, a response with their eyes. So as I'm seeing with both of you now, we're, you're, you're both you're awake, eyes open, looking at me. Um, and that's generally what you're, you're hoping to see with patients, that they, um, when you go in and you're conversing with them, they're keeping their eyes open, they're looking at you and they're... Um, they're not drowsy or closing them in any way. Um, the, the next thing that we look for, um, the, the next category down is eyes open to speech. So if we look at someone and you have to work a little bit to keep them awake, if you have to ask them really nicely, can you open your eyes up for me? Open your eyes, open your eyes. Why won't you open your eyes? <laughs> um, that's, uh, and if they open them and then they close their eyes again, you know, then you can say, oh, okay, this person has, has lost a little point here. Um, Let's go down. So next, the, the next point down would be making an assessment as to whether or not someone's eyes are open to pain. So for this, unfortunately, you're going to have to uh, um, apply some sort of painful stimuli. 
the best thing that you can do is grab them um, right here on the shoulder, so they're in between the neck and the shoulder, um, which is called the trapezius. Yes. So I got that one for a second. That's good timing. <laughs> yep, the trapezius. So you, you grab them there, you grab them nice and tight. It's the place that I absolutely love to get a massage on. It feels amazing. But for most other people, it just seems to be me, um, for most other people you squeeze them there, it is going to hurt and they are going to open their eyes, or hopefully, um, hopefully say, get the hell off me, what are you doing, leave me alone. That's the most ideal thing. Um, if, um, if you apply this painful stimuli and they don't open their eyes, then they're the next score down. Um, the lowest that you can get in this category is a one, um, which would be eyes not opening. So the next thing that I will do is um, uh, assess someone on their best verbal score. Um, so what I will usually do to do this is, um, is ask them for very pointed questions. I always ask them the same thing. I ask them in the same order, just so I never forget. Um, so I will start by asking them what their name is. I'll ask them what their date of birth is. I'll ask them where we are today and I'll ask them what today's date is um, and go from there. The, the reason that I ask these questions in these order is generally if someone is going to become confused, they are actually going to lose the ability to remember the date first and then they're going to have a, they're going to lose the ability to remember where we are and then they'll lose the ability to remember who they are. So starting in this order, I can sort of tick them off that list as we move along. Um, so if, they, if you ask them those questions, they get every single one of them right. They get a five out of five. Well done. You can move on. Um, if they get any of those questions wrong, um, which can be a little bit mean with the date, especially in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, yeah, very mean. Um, then I will mark them confused. Mm. Um, then we would move on to what would score a three. So that would be if someone has inappropriate language. Uh, and what you're looking for here is you've come up, you've asked someone what their name is and instead of saying their name, they have said something incredibly random to you that makes absolutely no context to what it is that you're talking about. If they've said to you someone else's name, that's still responding with a name. But if they've started talking about pineapples, then you would assume that they are bringing out inappropriate language. Um, the, the key thing here is what you're looking for is the best response. So you can get someone who is speaking completely inappropriate words to you, but then will say with reliability their name. That is actually a marking them a four. They're confused there. Um, even if everything else they say is inappropriate, it's their best score is what we need to go off. Um, the, the next score down is an incomprehensible. So um, generally with people here, they're just, they're making sounds or it's something that you, you can't really understand what it is that they're saying. Could be that they're speaking to you in another language. Um, though generally you, you should at least be able to understand their name if they're speaking to another language, but just something to be aware of. Um, so this is if you're, you know, you're, you're trying to get a response and you, you're just getting some muffled noises. Um, then you would say, you, know, you would mark them down as a two. Um, and then a one is no sound whatsoever. Or um, they may have a tracheostomy tube or they may be someone who's nonverbal. Um, interestingly enough, if they are someone who is either of these cases, even if they can write down for you on a piece of paper their name, date of birth, 
um, where we are, you know, who the Prime Minister is, all these questions, even if you know 100% they are orientated, you've not heard their voice. So you're not able to mark them any score higher than a one, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so that's just something to just be aware of as well. Some areas like ICU will have like a modified one where it's one teeth. Yeah. So that's acknowledging they've got a tube that's inhibiting them from breathing and you can't further assess it. Um, and some ICU scales will actually have a graded scale of um, 3T, 4T, um, dependent on their written communication. But it's a, again, it's modified and it's supplemented by a lot of other stuff. So the reproducibility is tricky, isn't it? Uh, definitely, Between definitely. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a limitation to the assessment that we're doing and this unfortunately is one of them. You're, you're just not really able to assess these people who are non-verbal properly using this. Is it true that the Glasgow Coma Score came from Glasgow based on drunkenness? Is that an urban myth or is that true? I've never heard this before. I believe that's an urban myth. My understanding was oh. it came actually out of um, neurosurgical practice and it's it, it's been misappropriated as a single point assessment, whereas its only real strength is in serial assessment of the same patient. Yep. So it's pretty useless as a single point assessment, but... Um, but the exact example that Bren's talking about is the reproducibility. There is, there is a very specific way to do it and that's where the strength of it comes from is assessment across providers, particularly in evaluating a patient post-neurosurgery. Okay, so there you but, go. But your story's cool. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> amazing. What, what is the story? I heard that the Glasgow Coma Score came out of the fact of drunkenness in Glasgow where they were… From patients from or staff? Just or? people in the street. Oh, yeah. Okay. Really drunk. Um, working out their level of consciousness um, and I, I just never knew if it was true. It is a score. Can you tell me what's what's a stellar score and what's a dangerous score? So it's, a, it's a GCS 15 is an is a absolutely perfect score. You're, um, it's, it's out of 15. There's, um, there's the highest you can be is a 15. The lowest that you can be is a three. Um, getting one, um, one mark in each category. Um, so for eyes, for voice, and then for motor, which we're about to get into. Um, generally, for each person, it's hard to really work out what would be dangerous for them. It really would depend what their baseline is. But there's definitely been some evidence that people around a GCS 7 or 8 will generally have some issues with their airway and will need airway support if they get down to that level of consciousness. Um, generally, there's a high risk that they will lose their airway um, and yeah, need support, intubation, transfer to ICU. So the dangerous is, yeah, when you get down there. Um, so the, the last category would be motor. So um, this is a score out of six. Um, the six things that we're, we're looking for here. Um, what you're trying to do, the, I, I suppose the, the easiest person to work this out on is someone who's a GCS 15. You walk up, you need to see that they obey. So you will generally get an idea of that straight away. If you start to wake them up and ask them the questions, they will start to respond to you. You're fairly certain that you're going to be getting someone who's obeying. Um, I will ask them to you know, poke out their tongue, wiggle their fingers, squeeze my hands anything like that. Um, if they do any of those things for you um, and you're fairly certain that it's consistent, done. Um, it, it then starts to get a, a little bit more tricky. Um, from here on out, if they're not obeying, you need to once again apply painful stimuli. Um, it once again needs to be the trapezius squeeze, um, which is why you can almost do this assessment the same time you're doing your eyes. 
um, so you don't have to inflict pain on the person twice. Um, so you're aiming for a, a central pain stimuli, which means you, you're not wanting to inflict pain anywhere on the, the hands or the feet. You want to go somewhere in the middle. Um, it used to be that um, a sternal rub was something that was um, used quite regularly. Um, but they found that that caused quite a lot of bruising and um, a lot of pain for people later, whereas they found, yeah, the trapezius squeeze um, didn't generally have long-lasting effects. So trapezius squeeze, what you're looking for is something called localising. Um, and localising is if someone has managed to feel this painful stimuli, they know that someone is hurting them and they will do what they can to try to get this person away if I was to do that to either of you, you would either grab my hand and, and pull me away or you'd grab me and try to get rid of me. Liverpool uh, kiss you. That's yes, well, do. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, either of those can be um, seen as, as localising, but I suppose the, the exact definition of it is if your arm raises up and crosses over your midline trying to get away. Um, you need to be really careful when you're doing this that you're not hurting someone on the side that maybe they're weak on. Um, and it can be very difficult in someone who's bilaterally weak. You know, if they can't reach their hands up, it, it can be difficult. So but generally localising is next. Next is withdrawing. So this person, while you're applying the painful stimuli, they're pulling away from you. Um, so not lifting their arms up to pull you. They're just, they're, they're shying away. Um, and then um, the, the, the next three scores are, are generally... Um, for people who have severe brain injuries. So you're getting someone with um, abnormal flexion, their arms all pull up in a, um, in a very tight-looking manoeuvre um, or they'll have, um, they'll have abnormal extension where their arms all sort of straighten out and their wrists will move down or no response at all, which is obviously quite dire. And, um, and that's, yeah, that's GCS. Within those three categories, which mm. is, you know, awareness, vocal and motor, have they got five scores each? No. So, they, so it's eyes, vocal and motor. So the eyes, you get, uh, it's a score out of four. Um, verbal, it's a score out of five. And motor, it's a score out of six. Right. Which totals up to equal 15. Or for each of them, the lowest score you can get is a one, which is why it would, yeah, total up to three. And just to close the loop on our um, discussion about the origins of the Glasgow Coma Score, it was two neurosurgery professors from Glasgow in the 1970s um, by the name of Graham Teasdale and Brian Jennett that discovered it and was assessment of head injuries. To be fair, I think it was someone in a pub who told me that. Yeah. That's nice. It, was yeah, not, well, it yeah, wasn't an academic yeah, thing. Okay. It's plausible. Yeah. <laughs> Very plausible. Very plausible. So she's ever, ever been it. to Glasgow. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was trying to shy away, but yeah, there you go. All right. Your number three is how do I effectively assess a patient's limb power? Is that what I'm trying to say? All right, sorry. And so your number three is how do I effectively assess a patient's limb powers? Um, I like this one mainly because people have a lot of trouble with working out exactly how strong people are. It can make – whenever we get relievers on our ward or we get new grads in, it's one of the questions that I'm constantly asked, Bryn, I'm not sure about these limb powers. Can you check them for me? Can you help me out here? I, I just don't know what I'm getting. Um, with someone who is able to obey you, it is an incredibly easy assessment because generally all you need to do is get them to do certain things for you. Um, 
and just feel how strong they are. Something to be mindful of um, where is probably with the first category of um, strength. So it's a score between one to five, five being full power, one being no movement at all. When someone's a five, it's normal power for them. Um, and the reason I just like people to be mindful of this is you are going to have a very different normal power between a 90-year-old old lady and a 20-year-old bodybuilder. You're, it, it's going to be vastly different. So it's normal power for the person. Um, what I like to do or, or what we're supposed to do, especially at the RBH in terms of assessing power, um, there's four movements that we're supposed to do. So the first is a arm raise and it's literally them laying their arms on the bed and lifting them up while you press against them. Um, then there's a finger extension. So it's you um, isolating the joint, holding, holding them by the wrist and getting them pressing up against you. Um, the reason we're isolating this, um, the joint is we don't want – we've made the assessment on what their arms are doing. We only want to assess what their fingers are doing. And so if we don't isolate, if they're weak in their arm but strong in their fingers, you, you're not going to be able to appreciate that. Um, the next one is leg extension. So you're getting them to essentially kick their leg forward while you place your hand on their shin and, and press hard against that. Um, and then you're looking for ankle dorsiflexion, which is pretty much um, putting your toes to your nose. Um, interestingly enough, we did have someone ask a patient recently to do that and she lifted her foot up and put her toes against her nose. That's impressive. Yeah, it was actually very impressive. Not, not, um, not a straight leg. Did she, did she score a seven on her <laughs> she, Yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it, it was for, amazing. And for Australia, 9.2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> That's funny. So it's the, um, those are the assessments that you need to do and then it's just um, working out how strong someone is based on those assessments. So if you're a five, yep, you got full power, everything's equal, um, you're, you're strong, um, or strong for how you would be there. Um, the next um, category down is a four. So if you're marking someone a four for limb powers, they're, um, they're able to be overcome by you. That's, that's going to be very difficult, especially if you're – we've had people who are bodybuilders and – Technically, they were weak on one side, but they still could not be overcome <laughs> by the nurse that was, you know, by the, the young small nurse trying to, you know, push their arm down. Um, and that's when you would take into account the fact that one side is significantly stronger than the other and be able to make that assessment there. Um, the next one is, um, is movement against gravity. So essentially you're asking them to lift their arm up and if you touch their arm in any way, their arm falls straight down to the bed. Um, and the next is movement with gravity eliminated. So generally this would be moving their arm side to side or if they're laying their, their arms on the bed, you know, they may be moving them across their body, just never lifting them up. Um, and this would be the same with the legs, you know, shaking the legs side to side or with the hand, with the, difficult to do with the legs, but with the hands, you know, if you turn the hand to the the side and getting sort of wiggle their fingers a little bit for you. One is a flicker, which can be very, very hard to, to notice. And then zero is, is no movement at all. Okay. Your number four is what other sources of assessment can you use when you're trying to do a neurological assessment? 
I suppose one of the first things, um, I'm going to stick with the paperwork that we have here with the Royal Brisbane, so it's the full neurological assessment, um, which is really focused um, mainly on double-checking if someone's having some, any sort of stroke symptoms. I'm just going to pull it up here so I have it here as a, as a little reminder. Um, so you're looking at a eyebrow raise and asking them to smile. I think there's a lot of education out there at the moment on you know, recognising the signs of stroke. So if there's any sort of movement there where one side is, is not moving, um, you, you know that you're looking at a facial droop here and then you know, things need to be escalated there. Um, next is visual fields, which can be really, really difficult to, um, to assess if you've never had to do it before. But generally, visual fields... Um, for each person, you've got your eyes. You could split your eyes up if you imagine your vision into quadrants. Um, and there can be conditions that mean that for some reason or other, one quadrant of your vision has just disappeared. Um, it, it can be related to your eyes, but quite often can be related to your brain. Um, being able to assess this can be quite difficult. There is a, a whole process to it. But um, generally, one of the best ways of seeing it is if you take someone for a walk and they keep walking into a wall that they don't notice on one side. I wouldn't do this with every patient. Uh, it may not end very well, but you, you're going to notice that there's some sort of visual loss. Um, the, the, the way that we would assess it on the ward is, is quite involved, but yeah, essentially it, it involves covering up one eye, putting you, you closing the same eye, and you're putting your hands up and wiggling your fingers until you both can see. And if they can see the, the wiggling fingers at the same time as you can, um, then that means uh, your vision is the same and as long as you don't have a visual field cut, that could be a, a bad way Tricky. to find out. Yeah, <laughs> As long as you don't have a visual field cut, it would mean that your vision is the same. Yep. That's, uh, that's essentially how you do that one. Um, the next one's all about um, headaches and then it's also about sensation. So you're looking to see, you know, do they have numbness? Do they have tingling? Do they have any other strange feelings which could be... Um, a sign that something is going wrong. Um, the next person that I like to really involve is the patient. Um, if they're alert, um, it makes it very easy, but what you're looking for is finding out what their pain score is. Do they have a headache? What, how are they feeling? Any nausea? Um, have they had any seizures as well? Uh, this can all be quite difficult um, as, as we well know, the health literacy of some of our patients can be um, you know, not fantastic. So trying to educate them to look out for signs, what's normal, what's abnormal and asking really pointed questions. That's, the, um, that's really the time where, um, you, where people need to work and develop as clinicians so you know exactly what to ask and what will give you the information that you need. It can be a difficult one. The next, um, the next area that I like to look at at the same time as they're doing a neurological assessment, we're looking at vital signs. So um, especially with people with increased um, um, pressure in their head, there can be changes, they can have blood pressure changes, there can be heart rate changes, um, and depending how severe these changes are, um, the body can do different things to compensate. Um, generally, if you were to have someone who has something wrong with their brain, and they're telling you they've got a really bad headache and their blood pressure is through the roof, that's probably a sign that something incredibly untoward is going on um, and something needs to be done. But we are going to get into deterioration and escalation later. I'll, I'll stop there. Um, one, of the, one of the 
greatest sources of information that we have on our ward is our families. Mm. We have patients who are unable to communicate, who are unable to tell you what their pain is like, who are unable to say, oh, I feel a bit worse than I felt yesterday. Um, and the, the family who has been sitting next to that bedside all day and watching their loved one is, um, is really such a wealth of information for us. Just to be able to go and say, hey, have they reacted to you today? Have they spoken to you today? What do you think is going on? We really like to listen to our families up on the ward um, and we really encourage and try to educate them to come to us with any, anything that they see wrong. Um, because generally when the family notices something's wrong, if they think there's an issue, um, if we, when we act on that, um, they are generally right that something has happened. And nothing it doesn't always have to be something neurosurgical, but they are, um, they are always, yeah, a fantastic wealth of information for us. What do you do with patients who don't have English as a first language? Like how do you, you know, do you use interpreters? You know, do you have to rely on family? Like how do you get around that with a neurological assessment? We, we rely on families a lot um, with interpreters. Hard to get an interpreter in the middle of the night, as you can imagine. Yep. Um, generally, we will rely on families. We'll allow families to stay if someone needs to have um, an interpreter there. It is difficult with certain conversations. You really should have an interpreter there because um, it shouldn't be a family member um, who's translating certain things for you. But to, uh, to assist with, a, um, with your assessments, families are, are incredibly beneficial. Um, and I, I think we've, um, we've had many families stay over the past, certainly the past, you know, since COVID sort of went away, that's, it's really helped us. Um, with communicating well and, and making um, the proper assessments that we need to. And just a great point to give a plug for Card Medic, um, which is an app that was developed in the UK and is, has translations with a range of common medical conversations, including um, GCS assessments and stuff, into yeah. different languages. So both in written form but also in um, recorded audio form. So I've um, had to once use it... Um, well, this was the more interesting example if we needed to do a place a urinary catheter on a Chinese older Chinese man who was in, who'd just been admitted to ICU. His family weren't around, um, and we needed to explain to him to get a indication of whether he consented to it, but also just that he understood what we needed to do. Um, and pulled that out. Um, had seen in his notes that he spoke Cantonese. Um, found it and pressed play, and he burst into a smile because he understood what he was being asked and he pulled his pants down, which we were yeah. like, that's consent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that is. Um, so Card Medic is – it's a great app. Oh, fantastic. I've yeah. not heard of it. Yeah. I, I, I certainly have used some translation apps yeah. in the past. I felt slightly dodgy while doing it, that's for sure, just because you, you can never be 100% certain that what you're trying to get across yeah. is actually being understood. Obviously, in that case, definitely understood, yes. So Card Medic, C-A-R-D-M-E-D. I see. I see. Yeah, yep. yeah. Okay. And is it free or do we pay free. for it? Free. Right, well that's no fun. conflict of interest. <laughs> the five things that's podcast. <laughs> card medic. <laughs> this podcast yeah. is brought to you by Card Medic. <laughs> All right. So your number five is how do you determine whether someone um, is having a de deterioration and at what point do you escalate cares? 
this can either be incredibly easy or incredibly hard. Um, you can either walk in and, and find your smiling, talking GCS15 patient is now completely comatose and not responding to you. That is 100% an emergency. Press it now. Get the you know, emergency buzzer. Get everyone here. Or you could find your person who is a little bit drowsy um, already is maybe just that little bit drowsier or the person who was a little bit confused was a little bit is a little bit more confused. It's just it can be really hard and you can really feel like you're splitting hairs sometimes working out exactly how this person has gotten worse or what you would need to do about it. Um, I find that um, like uh, one of the things to follow is definitely our Merck criteria. Um, so I think the, the general things are if you get a GCS drop by two, if you get limb power drops, if you get sensory changes, if you get a blown pupil, um, mert straight away and feel empowered to do so. Um, if you're seeing new or repeated or prolonged seizures, um, jump in and, um, and make sure you escalate that as you need to. Generally, that's a medical emergency as well. Um, with um, with seizures, I will comment. It's um, it, it can be quite difficult, especially with some of our patients going back to the health literacy thing. Um, just some of them knowing what constitutes a seizure, it can be it can present in so many different ways. But the the amount of patients that I've had that talk about a a weird hand that just does a funny thing, or or that they have these random blackouts, but they they don't notice, and then you, you see it and you go, oh, that is you are currently having a seizure, and they go, oh, I. They, they see the movies and they see the frothing at the mouth and the eyes rolling back and they think that's what that looks like. So I, I suppose clinicians being aware that what you're seeing might be you know, seizure activity as well. We also and have a great podcast on seizure management if oh, you need fantastic. to want to go back and have a listen. Or refer your patients to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah great yeah. idea. Yeah, fantastic. I've not heard that one, but yeah, sounds like a, yeah, sounds like a good one. For your listening pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Um. The, the hard thing can be also when you have got a fluctuating patient working out what their baseline is as well. Um, so sometimes it's not so clear cut if they do fit that criteria. For instance, if you've got a person who for the most part is nonverbal um, and doesn't really obey, but you've come and done an assessment and they said their name to you and obeyed to you once, and then you've come back a few hours later and assessed them and once again they're not talking to you and they're not obeying, technically that's a, that's a significant GCS drop. But you have to think critically about what their baseline really is. And the argument would be that their baseline is a lower GCS, but they just they had this one moment where they were a little bit better, um, which we see in people who are recovering, especially from significant head injuries. They will fluctuate and as they start to get better, they'll have moments where they're really, really well, and then, and then come back down to what their, their current baseline is. The idea being or the hope being that they will continue to move in an upward trajectory and be more of the GCS 14 obeying you, talking to you. The other thing to be aware is, is really backing yourself with assessments. The, the amount of times I've come in and I've um, assessed someone's limb powers and I've found that they were weak I've looked through the other notes and I've seen that everyone else's limb assessment has found that, you know, they've found this person to have full powers and I get confused. I was like, oh, like they were, they were definitely weak, but 
they're also alert and saying uh, like they're not worried about it and you go back through their notes and you find out that you know, five years ago they've had a stroke and they have not been able to move that arm properly in years. It, it can just it really backing your own assessments but also being aware that the assessments that were done before you aren't necessarily true um, and it could be that um, other people were just uncertain of what the assessment they were doing. I always like to go back through allied health notes because um, physios and occupational therapists at our species, they're really good at documenting what they find um, and also going through um, medical notes. I would say they're, they're not as good. Do doctors listen to this? I would say they're probably not as good at writing everything down, um, but certainly with their assessments, they're, they're really, really good when they notice a change and when they notice uh, on admission, you know, what were they like when they, when they came in? Um, and so then going off that to go, okay, when they arrived in this hospital, they, you know, the doctor found that they had this sort of weakness. This is what I'm finding now. But also being aware that people can fluctuate. Um, it, can be, it can be very, very difficult to, to, really, um, to really work it all out. One of the biggest things I would say, though, in doing my assessments and whether or not I'm worried about someone deteriorating is always finding a second person to come and have a little look and um, giving their opinion and generally a senior person as well. So the amount of times I'll get approached on the shift, someone coming to me saying, hey, I can't get so-and-so to wake up. Can you come and do this? Or I'm not sure about the limb powers or I'm not sure what's going here. Can you please come in and, and just give, you know, cast your eye over, see what you think. Um, I guess the other thing I want to talk about is um, small changes as well. The people who don't fit those criteria, they don't fit any of the escalation criteria that we have here at the Royal. So you might have a patient, um, as I talked about before, you know, people becoming slightly more confused to, you know, person, place or time. So you might have a person who was getting the date wrong every time you assess them and then the next time you come in they have no idea where they are and then the next time you come in they've forgotten their date of birth and you just go, this is, there's just something wrong here. I would encourage you to escalate that. That's... They haven't lost a mark at all on their GCS. They're still confused, but something's up. Um, and I think um, that's why asking those questions in that way, the way that I do, um, I'm able to pick up, oh, yeah, we need to do something here. And then the, the, I guess the last thing I'd like to leave it on is, um, is which patients I would consider escalating that don't fit any of the criteria um, I have called many, many medical emergencies for patients that don't fit any criteria, which are just, I feel that there is something wrong, mm. um, whether it be a significant headache or just this feeling that there is something going wrong. They just, they're not, they haven't dropped a GCS, but there's, there's just something weird or there's uh, the amount of times I've done that and it's ended up being that you know, my instincts were 100% right and there was something untoward happening, um, don't be afraid to call that. It can feel, I, I must admit, every time I, I do it, I feel like, oh, the, the team's going to rock up and be like, why are you calling a Mert? Um, but like, I've been doing it for 15 years, but it's, um, it, it still hits me. I think I called one a few weeks ago and I was just like, oh, they're going to rock up. But I was like, no, like I'm significantly worried about this patient. They, you know, they need to come, and, and they came, and it was um, it was a great result. The patient, you know, rushed down for stairs for a, an urgent CT, um, which it all ended up being okay. But it's just nice to to know, you know, back yourself, even if it feels like, you know, 
You're not sure. If you even if you're not sure, yeah. yeah. Shortly after the development and implementation of medical emergency team call criteria, there was a study done that actually showed the predictive value of each of the met criteria and worried criterion had the highest predictive value of ICU admission post met call. So nurses being worried is the most sensitive for predicting someone that's going to be sick enough to be admitted to ICU. I don't know if that still stands now the system's evolved, but that's still a cited um, piece of study. So trust trust it. I, I, I would say over my years of experience, the, the medical emergencies I've called for people who don't fit criteria, um, like there was a one the other day, but ones in years past, it, it has never ended well. So I, I feel like yeah, knowing to stick, you know, Sticking to your gut and knowing your judgment is there, it's there, you know. Well, it's, and you know, that's interesting that you're talking about gut or instinct. Often really what it is, is practice wisdom. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's not, it's not your intuition, is it? It's actually, I've seen this so many times before and there is, while they may not be re- meeting something on a score with a criteria, you just, there's something that is not right based on decades of experience. Yeah, you're definitely right. That's that's exactly what it is. You, you see it and you recognise it and you go, I remember what happened last time this happened. Mm. Uh, we need to escalate this. Go, 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 go. All right. So, Bryn, I'm going to have an attempt of summarising that enormous and fantastic content. Cool. So, your number one was why does my patient have altered level of consciousness? And you said, really, there it can be so many reasons that could happen. But start with the neurological, could it be stroke, could it be infection, could it be hydrocephalus, could it be a bleed? Um, And then go down, you know, also check, could they just be asleep? Um, That's also important. Um, Could it be metabolic? Could it be insulin? Are they a diabetic? Could it be liver? Could it be an encephalitis? So just think of the whole range of reasons. Um, Could they have nipped outside and gone to the toilet and taken an illicit drug or had some alcohol or could it be some of the medications that we've given? So take everything into account, even people who have just had um, a neurological surgery. Second, what is a GCS score? Definitely not uh, based on alcohol. We've uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've killed killed that urban myth, but essentially it's based on three criteria: eyes, verbal, and motor. And each of those criteria have a score that cumulatively, if they're all really good, come to 15, which hopefully all three of us are 15 because, you know, we would pass eyes is four, verbal is five and motor is six. I just wanted to quickly add to that because I don't know if we really hit it home. Always, always, always articulate your GCSs, the three components, and then summarise to the final score because as a random number, 10 can mean a multitude of different things. So always say an I verbal, motor response, and then summarise with your total score when you're okay. over. Good tip. So the lowest that anyone can get is three, which is like extremely alarming. Hit the hit the mert button. There's a big problem. So number your third point is how do I effectively assess my patient's limb powers? And you were saying, you know, some of this can be quite tricky because if you've got an elderly, frail 90 plus year old uh, or you've got an 18 year old bodybuilder you know that 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 there can be some subjectivity in there so first of all um, when one is the lowest five is full power the easy assessment is kind of like what's normal power for them so if you've got a patient saying I'm normally stronger than this or I feel like I'm weaker on my left hand side pay attention to that Um, and that there are several movements um, 
arm raise, finger extension, leg extension, um, and ankle something. Dorsiflexion. Ankle dorsiflexion. That's it. Um, so look at all of those, put it in context, listen to what the person's saying, and if in doubt, get someone else to check. Number four, what other sources of assessment can you use to do a neurological assessment? Well, first of all, there is a full neurological assessment and that includes things like eyebrow raise, smile, are they, um, do they have symmetrical face, is there a palsy or drop, um, anything like that, do they have visual loss, ask them about things that, like do you have a headache, is it severe, is it mild, uh, do they have numbness, tingling, uh, involve the patient, ask them about pain, feeling, nausea, um, look at a patient's vital signs and also don't forget the very powerful resource, not just of the patient but of their family and friends. If their family and friends are saying this is different from yesterday, like if, you know, if this is a great improvement, listen to that. But if they're saying they're just not, they're not as sharp as they were yesterday, they're not as strong, they're not as awake, pay attention to that. Number five is determining deterioration and escalation. And you said this can be quite tricky because some people can have fluctuations around that. Um, if a person is unconscious, if you have uh, any concerns, have a low threshold for hitting the MERT button. Um, people would much rather come and assess that the patient is safe than have something miss and have something um, unhelpful. Trust your instinct, which really is often practice wisdom. Uh, Get your uh, colleagues in, use your patient, use their family around and if in doubt, always escalate. You know, escalate to the team leader, escalate to someone else on the ward or hit that button. Rin, that's been a fantastic summary of five things we need to understand about neurological assessment. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 